can go up if we're right. They'll go down if we're wrong, but they'll have a runway to be able to make it back is basically the way that we like to look at it. So what does that mean? Well, it means we try to stay away from companies with a lot of debt. We try to stay away from companies with really bad assets. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. And guys, we have a very special guest on today. And we're very excited about having him on. He is actually the managing partner at Govering and Rosenswag, which is a natural resource investor. And in fact, it's very interesting right now in regards to the natural resource kind of category. And a lot of investors are not even aware of really where it's going. Because it's a little political, it may not be associated with kind of what, what the market trends are. But it, that's one of the reasons why I want to have this uh, next expert is on. Uh, he's been exclusively on the global natural Research Fund at Shelton Investment Company in 2007 to 2015. He's worked in investment banking department in Lehman Brothers between 2006 and 2007 before the actual you know, financial crisis. So he's been in this industry in the ups and the downs, the, the beautiful times when it was you know rainbows and sunshine to the nasty kind of situation. Uh, and so that's the reason why I wanted to have him on. Please welcome the managing partner at Goring Rosenswag, my friend, Adam Rosenswag. How are you doing today, Adam? I'm doing great, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here today. Well, man, I'm very excited about having you on because one of the things I was looking at you guys is, um, uh, you know, company, and you guys have a very contrarian value approach. And I want to start out with this first. You, you mentioned on your website, we believe the best way to find value in global commodity and natural resource markets is when prices are depressed, investors are discouraged, and financial measurements are cheap. So, with that being said, are you seeing some of those green flags taking? Uh, taking shape in regards to the contrarian value approach. Oh, absolutely. You know, what what we see right now is I would say unprecedented. And I know we use that word too much, but, you know, maybe it's, it's apt. In this case, it certainly is. The lack of investor interest in this space right now is really, really shocking. So typically, where we like to get involved in commodity markets and in natural resource equity markets is basically where investors have left this space for dead you know, when you go to cocktail parties, people say, oh, I knew that those oil speculators were bad guys. All they do is destroy value. You know, I know the gold mining sector is a bunch of idiots and they're just a bunch of hooligans and snake oil salesmen. Uh, and you want to stay away when it's exactly the opposite. When people go and say, you know, I made my fortune uh, in oil or I made my fortune in crypto or I made my fortune in whatever it is, when the money's piling in, what we've noticed is that that's the time you want to stay away. And Natural resources in particular, there's a very <clears throat> specific reason for that. It's all about the capital investment. It's all about the capital cycle. So when commodities tend to do well, it attracts money in, that money gets put to work, and it brings on supply. And ultimately, all that supply overwhelms demand, and it lays the foundation for the next bear market, and vice versa. When prices are super low, Money stays out. Nobody can invest in the space. Nobody wants to. Everyone divests, and is in some cases forced to divest. And that creates the setup for a supply shock. And that's where I think we are today. If you look back, you know, 2008 to 2014 or so, the world was worried that we were running out of everything. Commodity prices were really high, they were leaders uh, in the market. Uh, energy made up nearly 20% of the S&P in 2008. That's twice its long-run average of 10%, almost as high as 30%, which was the all-time high made back in 1980. There was about We were spending about $800 or $900 billion per year in the energy patch. And 
Uh, the reason for that was a, was a good reason. It, it was well motivated. It was the rise of China and the rise of Chinese oil demand and the idea that we were potentially running out of oil. But of course, exactly the opposite was happening. We were about to bring on the shales. And the shales were really the most important discovery uh, in the oil business in the last 70 years, since Saudi Arabia in the middle, 2000, uh, middle 20th century. Um, and we brought on not just the shale oil, but the shale gas field. And we were awash in energy. Prices fell. All that money was put to work. And it overwhelmed demand. And investors just got absolutely hosed. Such that by you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, we had slashed spending already for four years by about 50%. And then COVID happened. And we took this massive leg down in spending again to the point that we're you know, still 65% below that 2014 peak. So we've starved the industry over about a decade of about a trillion dollars. And that's starting to have a major, major supply response now. You simply cannot operate the oil industry with as little spending as you've had. And so that kicked into effect starting in 2021, right after COVID, really the summer of 2020. And since then, energy stocks have been on a tear. You know, energy since over 2021 and 22 outperformed the next best sector by over 100 percentage points. But still, nobody's willing to make the investment. No one's willing to put money in. And it has to do with, like you said, politics and ESG and environmental concerns. But the truth of the matter is that what it's setting up is an unbelievable supply shock. And that's what we're feeling the beginnings of today. Well, you mentioned some really good stuff there and, uh, you know, tremendous amount. And I was listening to another interview that you did and, and you, you were kind of mentioning a little bit in regards to like the alternative investing space. You got private equity, you have real estate, and of course you have natural resources. Like you mentioned, natural resources right up there in regards to the rate of return, very high. Uh, and, and, but like you mentioned, it is political and it is fighting against very like, you know, very sexy thing ESG right now. So with that being said, Adam, with the natural resources um, and, and, and kind of the trends and, and the indexes and the patterns that you're looking at, do they follow a consistent pattern or is it because it is very, um, you know, related to politics, which of course never, you know, corresponds or correlates with, with your kind of uh, consistent patterns? Does that kind of put a fright into this or do you see it like, hey, because of the, the misunderstanding about this industry, there's actually a huge opportunity for investors if they approach it correctly. How are you looking at it and how are you having that conversation and dialogue with, with your family offices and, and the investors you're having? No, it's a great question. So I think that absolutely in a normal cycle, when, and we've gone back, we like, we're big students of history. So we like to go back and look at cycles. We tend to go back for about 120 years. If I had more time or if I had, you know, a PhD doctoral student, I would love to go back and study cycles going back like five and 600 years, <coughs> but <clears throat> the applicability is fairly low, I suppose. So we go back, you know, to about the start of the 20th century and there's been three major commodity bull markets. And, <clears throat> you know, the first, believe it or not, was during the Great Depression, where if you bought a basket of commodity stocks, which everyone thinks of as so economically sensitive, they doubled during the Great Depression in the 10 years from 29 to 39, and the broad market was still down 50%. Then, of course, you had the, the 1970s, and then you had the period from about, call it, you know, the start of the 2000s all the way to 2010, 2011. And in all of those cases, <clears throat> when you start to see the fundamentals improve and you start to see inventories begin to drop 
and you start to see supply running behind demand like we see now, you would attract capital into the space. And so the stocks would run and that would pull money in. And then you'd have this kind of sweet spot where money's being pulled in. It hasn't brought on the new supply yet. The stocks do well, but you're setting the seeds for the next bear market. And what we see this time is really, really different because of ESP. Uh, a lot of very, very big pools of capital just can't participate. And so the money's not coming in. And so last year, you look at all the major ETFs in the space, you look at all the major fund managers in the space, they actually on aggregate saw massive outflows last year, despite the fact that the broad market was down almost 20% and energy, you know, was up 40%. So even like that's a massive delta. And you would think you'd see people running to that energy to try to save themselves, but they were selling the energy on every uptick. And the reason <clears throat> is because of this ESG narrative. So the question then becomes, what do you do as an investor? And I think the big uh, distinction you have to make is whether or not you are um, an investor or, you know, or a speculator, I suppose, because people often say to me, <clears throat> well, if you don't have the capital come in, can you get the stocks to rally? And on the one hand, we have like we, we, the stocks have doubled uh, and tripled off the bottom with very little participation. So you definitely can get the stocks to run. But more importantly, you know, to me, a speculator worries about who they can sell it to at a higher price. And an investor is willing to just own that business. And given the free cash flow generation that these energy companies can produce going forward and are producing already, uh, I would just be a happy owner of the business. You know, whether that gets paid to me in stock price, in dividends and share buybacks, you know, maybe maybe we end up, you know, you're the last shareholder because they buy back all the stock and the thing goes private. I don't know, but <clears throat> a good business generating this amount of cash at two and three times earnings, um, I don't I don't care who else wants to buy it. So all the numbers are up to the right trajectory. We're seeing that within the last few years. And then the thing, though, is, is because of the ESG narrative, there's kind of this negative connotation toward the natural resources for whatever reason. And in reality, though, if you just look at it face value, realize, okay, there's a lot of opportunity here, but for some reason, the investors are not associated and they're obviously selling it uh, at, 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 you know, levels um, that you've never seen before. So let me ask you this in regards um, to to the ESG versus the natural resources. Do you see that as a as a, as a double play uh, in regards to ESG? Because I do know in regards to energy resource, ESG has not really been able to output the kind of um, output that obviously natural resource has. Um, and I know Biden said in his state of, state of the Union, President Biden mentioned, of course, we'll still need natural resource for the next 10 years to be able to offset that. So just on more of like that, um, you know, holistic approach um, in regards to the, the importance of the natural resources. What are you seeing in regards to uh, uh, both of those categories? Well, look, you know, the reason that ESG is getting the attention that it's getting, and I mean, you can you can debate whether people's motives are pure, whether or not they have ulterior motives and whatever. But but ultimately, I think it's fair to say that that the appeal of ESG, and particularly the environmental side of ESG investing, has to do with global warming and it has to do with carbon emissions. And <clears throat> I take major issue with the idea of wind and solar solving those problems. We've done a lot of work on it and we see that the amount of material to build out the windmills and to build out this, the uh, solar farms is so great that ultimately the amount of energy you have to spend to generate that energy 
in this case electricity, is really, really poor. The, the re energy return on energy investment is very, very low compared to oil and gas, for which it's very, very high. And we've studied, again, here we have gone back, you know, hundreds, if not, if not thousands of years, and we've studied the impact of high efficiency energy, high EROI, and what it does to society, and low EROI. <clears throat> and when you have a low energy return on energy invested, meaning it takes you a lot of energy to make the usable energy that you use, whether it be in the fields or in the factories or what have you, uh, society just can't grow. And not only can it can't grow, uh, can it not grow, but it ends up um, resulting in major degradations to real economic output. So to me, that's not a feasible <clears throat> solution. <clears throat> and I don't think it's a surprise that some very, very in-depth environmentalists ultimately get to the idea and say, okay, look, you know, if we really want to combat CO2, we have to cut our um, expenditures, we have to cut our consumption of everything by about half. That's not because you'll reduce your oil demand by half. It's because if you go from oil and gas to wind and solar, your total output is going to fall by half because all of this energy that was available to the economy is now going into making the windmills themselves. <clears throat> so to us, the, 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 it's kind of a false narrative. It's a false uh, dichotomy, right? Being asked, do you want dirty oil and gas or clean, wonderful wind and solar? And to me, that's really just, uh, it's a false choice. What we need is something that's clean and efficient. And luckily we have it, um, and it's in the form of nuclear power. So we're huge advocates of nuclear power. We're huge investors in uranium. We have about 20% of the fund in uranium-related stocks and securities. And the reason we do is because, first of all, we haven't invested in a new uranium mine in about 30 years. And second of all, <clears throat> the idea that Nuclear power is both more efficient and clean. So I, I think that to, to a large extent, it's, it's sort of this false choice that's being put out there. I think that investors and institutions have really, really, really over the last 10 years or so run down this path of, of really strict ESG policies. Um, it worked because oil and gas and other resources we're actually in a bear market because of all the money we had spent prior. So it was kind of like a free lunch, right? You could seem like you were saving the world and deliver better than average investment returns just by staying away from coal and oil and gas. But now it's a more nuanced thing. Now we've gone down this path. We've really hurt the oil and gas business. We've really hurt the coal business. <clears throat> and so the question is, where do we get our energy from? And you look at a country like Germany, and they've spent more money than anybody on wind and solar subsidies, and they burn more coal than in any year in their history last year. Um, they, they're super dependent on natural gas, obviously from Russia, and a lot of coal. So yeah, and, and I'll, I'll make a mention also just quickly, um, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned Biden. The Inflation Reduction Act is really, 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 really ambitious, and I, I don't say that in a positive way. It's really shocking, actually, how much it looks to do uh, in terms of renewable subsidies. Uh, to the point that under certain scenarios, uh, the government will pay you uh, 120 cents on the dollar for you know your renewable investment. So I mean, it doesn't have to do anything, and you'll make money as the sponsor there. Um, what's that going to do? You know, I certainly probably wouldn't short some of the renewable names because they're going to have this huge tailwind from subsidies. But nor do I want to invest in them because I don't think that fundamentally they can deliver what they promise to. So where does that leave you? I don't know. 
you'll, you'll probably have periods of time where the stocks will do well on the renewable side, but I can't bring myself to invest in something that I don't think works fundamentally and physically. Well, you bring a lot of good context and color to to what what's really happening in the industry in in a, in a good kind of macro level. Um, and I want to dive into kind of your guys' thesis a little bit because you guys do have a really interesting way of looking at uh, the, this this approach, right? Like you mentioned, you mentioned obviously you guys are very well known, uh, well established in regards to natural resources. There's a lot of you know tailwind even behind this. Uh, even with all the political back backlash and, and kind of the negative, um, you know, um, uh, uh, kind of headlines, if you will, for this approach. However, though, the numbers uh, don't lie, of course. And so there has been a lot of uh, you know, up to the right trajectory. So I want to talk a little bit about your top down analysis, bottom up analysis, your portfolio construction, how you guys uh, you know, allocate that accordingly, what you guys look at uh, to ensure that obviously that risk risk reward is, is um, you know, allocated accordingly in each, uh, each investor's portfolio. So if you could, I know there's each one of those, we could dive into a micro level, but I'd love for you to just unpack that and uh, help us understand a little bit more, guys, your, uh, your thesis. Yeah, sure. So look, you know, we've been, <clears throat> I've been managing or helping to manage money since 2007 in the resources space. My partner Lee's been doing it since 1991. So we've been doing it for quite some time. And, and obviously, you know, your skills and your analysis change over the years, but to a large extent, it's the, the, the <clears throat> framework has stayed the same. We look for natural resource sectors in the commodity markets that we think over the next three to five years are developing big imbalances and big shortages. And then we try to buy stocks that will take advantage of that move that we see. And then we try to manage the risk, saying if we're wrong, you know, we can suffer some bad performance, but if we're wrong, we don't want to uh, permanently impair our clients' capital and our capital. And so we want to have names that can go up if we're right, They'll go down if we're wrong, but they'll have a runway to be able to make it back is basically the way that we like to look at it. So what does that mean? Well, it means we try to stay away from companies with a lot of debt. We try to stay away from companies with really bad assets. Now, that might sound intuitive, but actually, if you get a sharp bull market in natural resources, the companies with the worst assets will probably do the best. You know, they have this big beta that's built into them. And so you want to kind of manage that a little bit. I'd rather own good quality companies with high quality assets that can weather a downturn, but will perform when commodity prices recover. And <clears throat> from the top down, what we look for, as I said before, we look for areas where investor sentiment is really, really bad. People have no uh, allocation. You know, like I said, energy long term is about 11% of the S&P gets as high as 20 to 30% in the top of a bull market. It got as low as 1.8% in 2020. I mean, that's crazy. That's, you know, 80% below the average and 90% below the uh, peak. So that that's stuff that we like to do. We like cheap valuation, but oftentimes price earning doesn't really work because the companies have no earnings if the commodity price is really low. So we look to other things. We look to things like uh, price to book or things like long-term price to um, net asset value. Um, we've done a lot of work in recent years on this idea of a capital cycle and this idea of trying to formalize what I think we've already always felt and known uh, that why do we like to get involved when other investors don't? Well, it gives you cheap valuations. That's really nice. But more importantly, even than a valuation, is that uh, when investors have little to no interest, they're not spending money in the space. And when they're not spending money in the space, the companies aren't putting money in the ground. And if they're not putting money in the ground, depletion starts to take hold. 
And that becomes a really powerful force. And so demand is super important. We do a lot of work on demand, but capital cycles, um, sometimes if you're looking for them right, you can see them coming from a mile away and that becomes very powerful. So with that being said, because you mentioned a lot of good stuff here in regards to like certain red uh, red flags and green flags that you're looking for to identify the best, obviously, move for that three, five-year you know, timeline in regards to that up to the right, uh, making sure you get a good return. With that mention, you mentioned obviously book, um, you know, uh, uh, price to book ratio, and 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 obviously, you know, obviously their their debt. How much do they have on the books? What's that runway? Uh, and and also obviously that that re uh, risk risk factor. Uh, if you guys are wrong, you guys obviously have some sort of stop loss. So Adam, with that being said, and because it is in the natural resources, uh, is there a certain margin that you're looking at in regards to like those specific KPIs, uh, key performance indicators that you're identifying when you're investing into a company? You mentioned obviously, uh, you know, they're not too entwined with with debt and so forth. So, is there a specific ratio that you like to look for? Also, like you know, you mentioned obviously, um, you know, price to book. Uh, is there a specific ratio or is there a specific number that you kind of gravitate towards? Say, oh, okay, this is good. This is kind of what we like to. Or it's all dependent upon obviously the data that you get at a macro level, bringing in and um, in this uh, in this industry. Yeah, look, <clears throat> I think you know as an investor moves through their career, you, you develop um, some guideposts as to what you feel is appropriate. And then uh, as, as you probably mature a little bit, you begin to tinker with those and, and be able to, you know, learn the exceptions and stuff like that. So look, in general, you know, <clears throat> from, from a price to net asset value, what we like to do is we like to buy, we'll model a whole project based on its discounted cash flows. Uh, we try to model it on our best assumption of what the project will actually generate in terms of production uh, because, you know, I don't mind um, going out and saying, okay, look, I see there's, let's say you have a mine and it has a 10-year life of mine here, but they have really good results coming here and it's not in the mine plan yet. Well, I'm okay saying, look, I think there's a fairly high confidence that that will make its way into the mine plan because we've been doing this a long time and we have a pretty good sense as to when that happens and when it doesn't. That's a really easy way to <clears throat> you know, buy something and, and find value that, that the consensus may not because they're waiting for the official results and whatever. So they say, fine, look, you know, it extends, the mineralization extends for eight kilometers and all looks the same, there's no faulting. Are we sure that that'll get in the mine plan? No, absolutely not. But, you know, we have a high degree of confidence that it will. And, and this is about buying things at, at um, you know, attractive valuations and basically, you know, good odds, right? If, if, if the if the stock price prices it in at fifty percent, then it'll happen. And you think it's eighty percent, then you do that enough times, and then you make good money. Um, <clears throat> so we do that. We run it through on our long term commodity price, and as long as we can buy something that's a good deep discount to that, you know, what's a good deep discount? I don't know. Probably twenty thirty percent. You know, upside return potential. Sometimes you get much greater than that. You know, some of our energy name today are easily, based on our models, two or three times the stock price, easily. Um, as you get towards the top of a market, it probably narrows a little bit. Um, <clears throat> we've been spoiled with really cheap valuations now for three, four years. And so, you know, I'm, I'm used to these big honking return potentials where the stock could double or even triple based on our, uh, albeit aggressive, but our, you know, what we think are reasonable assumptions. Um you know, as far as things like price to book, as far as things, uh, you know, anytime you can buy something, you know, at less than book value, that's a good sign that you're in a depressed part of the market. 
Um, so not to say that we don't buy things above book value, but when we're looking for really deep discounts and a whole part of a sector, you know, like the junior gold space is all trading for less than book value. Well, that's pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, and as far as leverage goes, that's a trickier one. In general, we don't like leverage. So, you know, what's, what's an acceptable amount? If you're a junior company uh, and you're developing a mine, uh, I don't think really any amount of leverage is acceptable unless it's really project finance based upon the project, you know, whatever. But too much can go wrong in those junior companies when they're developing a mine. I've seen, I've seen companies with really good deposits, you know, reach, lever up, make an acquisition before the mine is commissioned, and then they have a problem with the mine, and the whole company goes broke and goes bankrupt, you know. So if there's no cash flows, it becomes a little bit tricky. Um, if you have a company like, I don't know, Freeport or whatever, um, that uh, is generating lots of good cash and several operating mines, a company like that can easily sustain a few turns of leverage on it. Um, they obviously, it's it, that's an interesting example too because a couple of years back in 2014, they made this really expensive acquisition. It was a really poorly timed acquisition uh, and there were some circumstances around it that were a little bit controversial and they levered up massively to do that. It almost cost them the company. So there you go. You know, it's like, you know, even a big company like Freeport, there's there's definitely such thing as too much debt. You know, then the, on the other hand, you have companies like some of these drilling companies or the offshore shipping companies. You know, debt is their lifeblood. It's all you know the vessels are all financed using debt, and you can probably stomach a little bit there because it's secured against the vessel and um, what have you. But you know, you got to be careful because those guys get into trouble and, and they can go broke. It's amazing how hard it is to go out of business if you don't have debt. I've seen companies that have moldered for 10 years, you know, down 90%, but they still have that runway to play for another day um, because they don't have debt. So, so we, 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 we do like that. Okay, so it's just putting it into context and saying, okay, hey, if they do have debt, where is it leveraged at and what kind of instruments? And obviously, do they have enough runway as well? But also, you like to gravitate away from the debt because obviously, like you mentioned, they have more money to play with. So that gives me – it helps me understand a little bit. Adam, when when you're looking, you mentioned, well, and, of course and, – and, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say one more thing. You, know, <clears throat> you mentioned risk a little bit, and we have lots of conversations with our clients about risk. And you know, there's lots of different ways to think about risk. and and you know, people talk about really quantitative risk measures and things of that nature. Um, but ultimately, the commodity space is incredibly volatile. The stocks go up and down a lot, and they go up and down a lot more than the market. Um, <clears throat> now, over time, hopefully they give you a better return than the market, and they give you a better return <coughs> Excuse me, <clears throat> on an uncorrelated basis, meaning they go up when other things tend to go down, and that can be very valuable to people. 2022 is a really great example of that. You know, they we were up uh, 16%, and the market was down almost 20. So, <clears throat> you you you. I think you can make a case that you do get rewarded for it, and they have a very important place in a portfolio. However, they're very volatile. There's no two ways about it. And so people say, well, what strategies can you do to try to lessen the volatility? And we've thought about this for 30 years and, you know, we've operated as a hedge fund. We've operated as a long only. <clears throat> we've operated not so much on the private side, but we know the private side very, very well. And there's just a lot of risk in the industry. You know, I can't think of an industry that has to deal with all the risks that the natural resource industry deals with. First of all, the price of what they sell goes up and down. You know, the price of oil in the last 
I'm not talking in the last 50 years, in the last five years, has gone from 27 to 87 to minus 40 to 130 to 70 to 80. Okay, show me a retail company. Show me, you know, Apple couldn't survive if they if their iPhones swung like that. <clears throat> and it's a fixed cost business. You know, the cost to drill your well didn't really change. So you, you have to deal with these massive swings in your top line. Then you have to deal with massive issues of geopolitics, you know, depending on where your mine is, your oil field is. You have to deal with countries that change the tax regime on you. And it's not just in third world countries. I mean, even in the U.S. now, you're talking about super normal profits tax after a period where these guys made no money. And, you know, now it's the sun shining and you want to make hay. And, and there's talk of, you know, these super normal profit taxes. Um, and then also, <clears throat> really importantly, you're not dealing with easy to operate machines and environments. You know, you're talking about turning rotary drill bits 15,000 feet. You're talking about operating, you know, in harsh North Atlantic, North Sea environments with massive salt corrosions where what you're producing is uh, incredibly flammable. You know, you're talking about pit walls that collapse. You're moving things. You're dynamiting and exploding. So there's lots of stuff that can go wrong. And so I think a massive dose of humility and understanding the volatility in the space is is called for. You know, <clears throat> I can't tell you the number of companies that we've owned over the years where you, you come in one morning and there's an announcement that there's a pit wall collapse and hopefully, you know, you pray that no one's died. Um, and then the stock's off 15% that day, you know. And then over time, it, it makes it all back. And then some, and our numbers, like you, you, you alluded to, and I'll leave it to your listeners and viewers to go and check us out, but, but point to the fact that we do well over time. However, uh, it's a tough, tough industry. Um, and so I think what you want to do is you want to keep the portfolio uh, a little bit diversified. Uh, you know, to us, a really big position is like 5 to 7%. You're not going to see us with 20% positions. Um, and, and you just realize that lots of these things can and, and unfortunately probably will happen. And you try to try to insulate yourself a little bit. And then you just prepare yourself for the volatility because at the end of the day, it's going to come. You know, it's, it's a volatile strategy. You'll, you'll never have. If somebody promises you a low volatility resource strategy, you know, I would run for the hills because something's going on and it's not going to deliver what you think it will. Well, I appreciate you being authentic with our audience, uh, Adam, and really, you know, laying face value of exactly what, what the situation is. Yes, you, you've got a lot of the returns from, you know, years, uh, you know, obviously historical, you know, years. And so you start realizing, okay, hey, there is a lot of validity in regards to Adam's approach and natural resources side of thing. However, though, you have to anticipate what comes with that reward. Right. And so understanding the risk as well in regards to volatility. And like you mentioned, geopolitics, I appreciate you mentioning that, uh, you know, at a macro level, right, global, because I do know you guys work, uh, you know, globally. And a lot of these companies that you guys do invest in are global, uh, you know, presence in, in a lot of different other countries. Adam, I really appreciate you being on here mm -hmm. and talking about it. I know there's there's a ton of content out there in regards to other interviews that you've talked about in regards to uranium, gold and all that fun stuff. Sadly, we're not able to get into all that, but I do know you have a ton of content out there, a lot of resources that other people can reach out to you. You. If they have questions in regards to maybe even wanting to invest with you or just maybe having the conversation in regards to natural resources and the opportunity that it presents in regards to this asset class, um, how do they do? How do they reach out to you, my man? 
Yeah, we're we're <clears throat> we're always available and always happy to talk. You know, that's why I don't have a voice here is because I end up talking so much. Um, we uh, are online. Our website, uh, just type in Gehring and Rosenzweig. What's nice about a name like Gehring and Rosenzweig is even if you get it about 30% right, Google will figure out what you mean. Uh, our, our website is gorosen, G-O-R-O-Z-E-N.com. Um, and, and, you know, please take a look. We have, we did a big investor day. Uh, mo I would say 99% of what we put out is, is all available in the public domain. And we don't charge for our research. You know, we're investment advisors and, you know, our research is just part of our process and we put it out to the public. Um, so that's all there. We have YouTube videos and stuff like that. Uh, but we did do a really big investor day last uh, fall in November, and <clears throat> that is available on our uh, website. Uh, that does that does have a, a cost though. So I just you know mentioned to 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 your listeners and viewers there. But go check it out on our website. Uh, it was about we had about I don't know eight hours of content. We brought in speakers uh, from around the world. Uh, very prominent speakers. One gentleman, Edward Chancellor, you know, he really informed my view of capital cycles. He wrote the book on capital cycles. And we even had a speaker that is now running for president of the United States. So, you know, go figure. I've never, not, not, never had that before. But we had Vivek Ramaswamy was our uh, opening speaker. Um, and uh, at the time, he was uh, <clears throat> this, the, um, founding partner of a company called Strive, which uh, is does ETF investing, that's sort of anti-ESG, anti-woke ESG and uh, ETF investing. Um, and he had you know, this very, very strong social message of America getting back to what it's good at and getting back to operational excellence. And then, of course, what is it, last week or the week before, he announced that he'll be running uh, for for the, the Republican nomination for president. So that was pretty cool, too. And so you can see it all there. Awesome. And make it easy for my audience. All those links are in the description below. So, And I would highly recommend going to reach out to his website. He's got a lot of blog and a lot of resources out there. And Adam, it's really cool that you linked up with uh, with that guy that's running, obviously, for president for the Republican nomination. That's really awesome. Uh, guys, those links are in the description. Make sure you stop what you're doing because it, there is a lot of misunderstanding. And the best way to understand this is by reaching out to Adam and his team and his resources, understanding this context for yourself and realizing the opportunity that presents itself and realizing really the face value of the the situation with ESG versus natural resources and all the, the the sexy headlines in regards to marketing. So Adam, I really appreciate you being on here and, and just talking about that. Guys, that is the managing partner of Govering and Rosenswag, my friend, Adam Rosenswag. Guys, that's Journey with Christian Evans podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. <laughs>